Reading from Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, it really is a joy and an honor and a privilege uh, to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful chapel, uh, and what a beautiful day uh, to worship the Lord together. Uh, before I begin, uh, let's open up in a word of prayer, and let's ask the Lord to grant us illumination uh, to bless our time together. So bow your head with me in prayer. Gracious and loving Father, we give you praise for who you are. Uh, we praise you for your amazing grace in which we stand, and um, everything good comes from you. And we thank you, Lord God, that in your grace you sent your Holy Spirit, and it's that spirit that searches the depth of God that can communicate truth to us. So we pray for illumination. We pray that you would give light to our eyes and our hearts. Help us to experience the depth of your grace. And as we look at this wonderful passage of how you use um, the senses that you give us so that we can imagine great things for you, Lord God, um, I pray, God, that you would touch our hearts in the way that only your spirit can. We commit this time to you, and we pray these things then in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, I know that um, Pastor Scott's been preaching through Genesis, and I'm going to give a message in Genesis as well, as you know. Uh, but I think I might be taking a slightly uh, different angle, because I want to touch upon the topic of imagination. And this is one of the things that I find very interesting. Um, I'm an educator um, and a minister, and in the educational world, one of the words uh, the buzzwords that uh, educators talk about all the time is that word imagination. Uh, but when I move into the church, I, I rarely hear um, a sermon or a talk on imagination. And it doesn't surprise me. Um, it doesn't surprise me because the word imagination is not used all that much in Scripture. Uh, if you get a concordance and look up the word imagination, you'll find it five or six times depending on which translation you look at. But that doesn't mean that the concept is not there. It's like the word trinity. The, tr the word trinity, uh, it might surprise you, is not found in scripture, but at the same time, the concept of the trinity is all over the place. And I do believe that imagination is all over the place. And I think when we don't emphasize um, our imaginations, it's really to our peril. Um, but if we're gonna be the people that God wants us to be, I think imagination is something that is absolutely essential to our Christian life. And especially in view of this pandemic, as we reopen and re-engage society, we need to imagine what we want our world to be like. And so we need imagination that is tethered to God's word. And when God's word shapes our hearts and our imaginations, I think something tremendous can happen because there's a lot of power there. Now, what I want to do today is just give you three tentative conclusions about imagination, comparing imagination in the world and imagination in scripture. 
Uh, the first conclusion is this, that the world emphasizes um, our imaginations, I think, more than the church. Um, there's a very famous song that was written by John Lennon, and it's called Imagine. The chorus goes like this. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. I was tempted to sing it, but I don't have a great singing voice, so I just read it. But I think you've probably heard this song, and it's probably in the top 100 most popular songs ever written. And uh, I'm sure that when John Lennon and Yoko Ono wrote this song, and it was played in the, the, the radio waves, it touched the chord in many people's hearts. And I'm also sure that uh, many people joined John Lennon in the sentiment. And it really is a beautiful sentiment. It's a noble sentiment. It's idealistic, of course, and probably not practical or realistic. But the heart behind it is, is beautiful. The point I'm trying to make is the world emphasizes imagination. And it does a lot because of that. It captures people. It captures people's minds and hearts. And eventually, that begins to shape and change people. Um, if we pivot a little bit and look at Hollywood, Hollywood does the same exact thing. Um, when I was growing up, there was a very famous um, TV show uh, that aired for many, many years. It was called Friends, and it took place in New York City. And I bet you Friends um, really captured the imagination of a generation. And because that sitcom captured the imagination of a generation, I bet you more and more people flocked to New York City and other cities because they wanted that experience of friendship. They wanted that experience of growing together and exploring the world and falling in love and all of these things. Um, so Hollywood knows this, produces it, uh, casts it, broadcasts it far and wide, and it captures a generation. Uh, we can say the same thing about the movie Matrix. Um, it really is based upon the social theory of a French um, writer, uh, Jean Baudrillard, and if you've ever tried to read him, he's almost impossible to read. It is very, very dense. But a movie can catapult his ideas into the world, and everyone knows that there is something called a matrix, or they, they at least think about something called uh, the matrix. And how did that happen? It's not through just pure philosophy or intellectual reasoning or, or um, talks giving public lectures. It's through Hollywood. Hollywood knows this, our, our movies know this, our novels know this. And so they create these things and capture people in a powerful way. Um, I, I think um, as believers, sometimes we think if we can just um, ration, rationally articulate something, then we won the battle. And I liken that to kind of a tadpole theology. And uh, if you think of a tadpole swimming in a, a pond or, or a lake or a stream, and there's a school of tadpoles, they don't know that they're all head. And the head doesn't stand a chance against the heart and the deep imaginations of people. And Hollywood knows this, um, the world knows this, uh, the world capitalizes on it, advertises knows this, and we see it in our day and age. And it's really shaping people in a powerful way. The second conclusion that I've come to thinking about this topic of imagination is that it is an incredibly powerful force. Um, I don't know what you think about Elon Musk, but I think everyone will conclude that he's probably a genius. And what he's able to accomplish is really remarkable. Uh, one day, a South African young man thought, you know, I'm going to build a car. It's going to be better than every other car, and I'm going to change the world. We might have laughed at him if he said that back then. But lo and behold, fast forward to 2021, and Tesla is an amazing company. 
Um, the same person basically said, well, I want to explore space. So he creates a space company that rivals national governments. And when he first said that, we might have laughed at him, but lo and behold, he's doing more than uh, sovereign nations. Absolutely remarkable. So people interview him because they want to know what is the secret uh, to his life. How is he able to do so much? And he always gives two answers. The first answer is you got to take risks. So he's not averse to taking risks. He doesn't play it safe. If he wants something, he goes for it and he puts his whole heart into it. And I, I think we can see that in his remarkable output and we can see that in what he's accomplished. But the second answer that he gives is really interesting. He says, it's my imagination. I imagine something and I go for it. So it's the coupling of imagination and, and daring. You put that together and then you have a formula for someone like Elon Musk. So he understands the importance of imagination and he wants to cultivate his imagination. And so imagination is something incredibly powerful. Uh, let me give you a story from my own life to show and underline how important imagination is and how powerful it is. When I was in ninth grade, um, I used to watch a lot of WWF wrestling with my, my friends all throughout middle school as well. And so uh, my friends and I in seventh grade uh, made a pact, about 12 of us, and we said we will all join the wrestling team uh, when we became ninth graders. And it was really remarkable because out of the 12 or so students that made this pact, I think almost everyone minus one joined the wrestling team. That year we were not very good because the wrestling team was rebuilding, but we were required to go to the big tournaments. And so we went, even though we didn't participate. And one tournament uh, was the district finals, and that night really uh, left a deep impression in my heart. Because the gym was filled with, I think, over a thousand people, maybe even two thousand people. It was the biggest school um, and the biggest gymnasium in our region. And uh, they made it really stunning. Uh, and it really uh, woke uh, our emotions. Because uh, in the finals, uh, they would be a big gymnasium, and they would begin to turn off the lights section by section. And at one point, as the lights are being turned off, people would be stomping on the bleachers. Those who were up, up top, they were banging on the radiators, and of course, they were yelling and screaming and clapping their hands. And he would crescendo until the final light was turned out, and for a split second, the gym went completely dark. And then there were four spotlights that shone. And so, because the wrestling mat was red, the whole gym turned red, and it became absolutely electric. And you can imagine a 14-year-old being there and saying, this is the greatest thing that he's ever seen. And that was me. And so I said to myself, when I become a senior, I will win this tournament, and I will do whatever it takes to do it. And so the next day, I asked my parents uh, for some money. I said, Dad, uh, I need uh, $30 um, every month, and I'm going to join a gym. And so my friend and I, we joined the gym, and we worked out six days a week uh, for the next three years. And we probably missed no more than two or three days minus Sundays because um, I had to go to church. Um, so I committed to this. And as I look back, what made me commit to this? And I was not a diligent student or a diligent person or meticulous in anything. But I did this day in and day out for years and years. And in fact, in my wrestling team, I was the first person in my high school to never have missed a practice in four years. So what propelled a young 14-year-old to do these things? It was simply his imagination. His imagination was captured, and it was captured powerfully, and it produced great power um, in my life. So that's my own testimony. There's another book that was written, um, and it's a, it's a fascinating novel. And if you want a good summer read, it's by Lawrence Thornton, and it's uh, a 
a book entitled Imagining Argentina. And it's a, a fictional novel that takes place in, of course, Argentina during the military dictatorship from 17, uh, 1976 to 1982 or three. And during that time, um, I think most scholars would say anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 people went missing. They were probably tortured and killed under this military regime. And so the novel takes place during that time. And uh, mothers, especially in the novel, are weeping because their sons and daughters are missing. And they have no idea if their sons and daughters are alive. And there is one character, and he's the protagonist. His name is Carlos Ruenda. And uh, he runs a children's theater, which you know, kind of makes sense. It's about imagination. Um, he runs a children's theater, so he's filled with imagination. But as the novel progresses, he realizes that he has an incredible gift. He's able to see the missing. He's able to see in the imagination of his mind where these people are and what's happening. And at first, he doesn't think anything of it because he says, oh, it's probably fake. But time and time again, the things that he sees in his mind actually turn out to be true. And so he becomes a believer in himself and in his gift. And he tells a couple of his friends, and obviously they're very rational, and so they don't believe. But one by one, even the most skeptical person begins to believe that Carlos has this incredible gift. And so he says, I got to do something, I got to do something. Um, and so he takes people into his backyard and says, I can help you. And it, it's a little weird, um, a little too spiritual in a, maybe a negative sense. But he's able to tell these mothers and these fathers where their children are and what's happening. And it brings great encouragement. And there's one point in the novel, um, his wife and his daughter, they're abducted too. And he's able to see them as well. And he says something which is really powerful. And what he says, it's my imagination of them that's keeping them alive. Now, the author doesn't say whether that is true or not, but the reader is led to believe that is true. And if you take a step back from it and consider imagination, you know, there is truth to that. I'll give you an example. Um, when I look out of my office, um, I see a 14-story building. Not only do I see a 14-story building, I see three playgrounds, right? And if I walk maybe 100 steps out of my office and I make a hard right turn, there's a beautiful community garden. Three playgrounds, a garden, a 14-story building. At one point, they did not exist. Uh, perhaps in a committee, people said, well, let's build a building here that's 14 stories. It was only in their imagination. And as they were talking amongst themselves, they said, you know what? I think kids will live here because this part of the Upper West has a lot of schools, so let's build one playground. And then someone else says, well, let's build two playgrounds. And another person says, well, there's a school right on this block. Let's build a city playground for this school, and so a third playground. And they probably said, you know what? These playgrounds are great, but what we really need is a community garden. And so let's plant a community garden. And so from a committee and imagination, came brick and mortar, playgrounds, metal, lots of fun for kids, and a community garden. And so what Lawrence Thornton says in his novel, there's truth to it, that we have to conceive of something, we have to imagine it, and when we take a step of faith, we actualize it in our world. And so we get to our third conclusion, and we get to our text. I love this text. I love this text for so many different reasons not just because we see the covenant of God working in a powerful way, and we can go off on that and launch into that, 
Uh, not because later on we'll see a self-maledictory curse of our covenant-keeping God. All those things are there. But I love it because God is so um, intimate and pastoral when it comes to um, Abraham. And Abraham in this passage has two great needs. And God knows that immediately. And he meets both of those needs, even before Abraham says a word. If you look at this context, um, Abraham is also a man of war because he had to rescue his son, uh, his son, his, his nephew, um, from these kings who, who had taken him hostage. And so he takes 318 men, according to the passage uh, prior, at the Plain of Ono. He defeats these kings. He rescues his nephew. He takes his nephew back. And here we start our text. And God says two things right in the beginning, before Abraham even says a word, because he knows that these two things are uppermost in his mind and in his heart. He's cogitating upon these things. And those things, two things are, man, I bet you now that I won, we're going to be attacked. There's going to be a retaliation. And so what does God says? I am your great shield. And so God knows exactly the anxieties of Abraham's heart. There's going to be a retaliation. So God says, I'm going to be your shield. I am your fortress. I am the divine warrior. I am the one who's going to protect you. And the second thing that Abraham is probably thinking is, I saved my nephew, but I don't have a son. And so by saving his nephew, he's thinking about the longings of his heart that he wants a son. And he thinks his heir will be Eliezer of Damascus. But God says, no, you're going to have a son. And he's going to come from your own flesh and bones. I know that you're old. I know that uh, Sarah's womb is as good as dead. But I am going to produce a miracle, and you're going to have a son. And so the very two things that Abraham is thinking about, God meets him right then and there. And not only does God meet him there, we see the intimacy and we see the pastoral touch. We see the, the workings of imaginations because God says, look up into the stars and see if you can, can count the stars. Now, that's a little difficult in New York City because we live in a city of lights, and so the sky is dimmed um, at night in a sense, and we can't see the stars. But if you're in the wilderness, you can't count the galaxies. You can't count uh, the amazing number of stars. And so Abraham is there on this dark, perhaps cold night, and he's looking up. And he's wondering, can God really do this? And so God works upon his imagination in a powerful way. And so he tries to count, and he can't count because they're innumerable. He sees the multiplicities, the galaxies, and he says, this is what God has promised. And so Eliezer of Damascus will not be my heir. I will have an heir. And not only will I have one heir, but there's going to be nations of people that come from me. That's truly remarkable. Can Abraham really believe that? And I suspect that God had him look up because he wanted, of course, Abraham to be a person of faith and he is the father of faith, to be sure. But if he's going to get there, it's got to be tied to his imagination. And so when we look at the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, in Romans chapter 4, and he makes uh, a commentary um, upon this passage, uh, we see that... Um, Abraham is truly a remarkable person because of his hope, because of his unwavering faith, because of his stubbornness in the things of God. But I also think we can say because of his imagination. Let me read to you what Romans chapter 4 says. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. So God used his physical sense of sight to fire his imagination and the firing of his imagination strengthened his faith and the exercise of his faith I think strengthened his imagination and therefore he was unwavering when it came to the promises of God and he gave his life to it and so he became uh, the father of many nations and we can even say that all of us let's do a little theology we are descendants of Abraham too because of the faith that Abraham had uh, so the third conclusion is um, imagination has to be tethered to the Word of God. And when it is tethered to the Word of God, there is great power. And I'm giving this message, particularly um, at this, hopefully, Lord willing, the tail end of this pandemic, because our churches has, have been shuttered, um, some of our schools have been shuttered, our businesses as well. Um, we had a year to reflect. We had a year to think. And so we have to reimagine what we want our world to be like. Do we want to go back the same way? Or is God creating something new? And if he's creating something new, don't we need sanctified imaginations tethered to God's worth, which leads to faith and leads to action? So we can reimagine what this world can be for the glory of God. So the question is, how do we get there? What can we do? What I'm going to do is uh, co-op two authors and I think they give us uh, an initial path forward. Uh, the first author is uh, a New Testament professor by the name of N.T. Wright, and he wrote a book, not a book, uh, an article about how the Bible can be authoritative. And so I'm going to steal that illustration, apply it into this context. So I'm uprooting and replanting here. So N.T. Wright basically says, imagine you found a Shakespearean play, and imagine that all the Shakespearean scholars and those people who love Shakespeare say this is his ultimate masterpiece. There's nothing better than this. But there's one problem. The final act is missing. And so you're in a dilemma. Everyone concludes that this is the best Shakespearean play ever to be discovered, and yet it's incomplete. What do you do? And so N.T. Wright gives us um, a suggestion, which I think is probably the best suggestion. Get Shakespearean actors um, who know the corpus really well. Have them memorize this play and... Just live it. And when it comes to the final act that is missing, let them just ad-lib. Uh, they'll probably be pretty close because they're steeped and saturated in the Shakespearean corpus and they know how perhaps Shakespeare's mind thinks. And I think there, there's insight there when it comes to our imaginations. Um, our imaginations are, of course, creative. And so new things can come up. But the key is to ground ourselves in the Word of God or to use the language of the Apostle Paul to have the Word of God richly dwell us. And so when the Word of God is richly indwelling us, or we can say with Paul in the book of Ephesians that the Spirit of God is richly indwelling us, then we can take steps of faith. We can be daring. We can uh, step out and love people and bless people and reimagine the world. But the beauty and the power there is our imaginations are touched and it is connected and tethered to the Word of God. In fact, it's saturated by the Word of God. And when we do that, I think we're going to get closer to that which is true, beautiful, and good, these transcendentals, which I think Scripture talks about, but also great literature as well. 
The second author I think that um, will give us some, um, some mileage is Walter Brueggemann, and he is a, a great Old Testament scholar. And uh, he basically argues that um, the world, and I, I think he has a criticism of our, our society as well, and he basically says that royal consciousness uh, begins to seep in and control people, and he sees royal consciousness um, coming in at the time of Solomon, and what royal consciousness is, is basically leaders that are self-serving. And so they create um, a world where there's a common sense view of the world that really benefits those in power. And, says, and he says, at that point, we become numb. And because we become numb, we can't imagine what God is calling us to do. And so our imaginations hear the death knell, and therefore we can't think God's thoughts after him. And so his solution is we need prophets, because what prophets do, they give an alternate world. Uh, what prophets do is they introduce a new reality. Uh, what prophets do is say, this is what's happening here, but let's imagine what can happen when we are filled with the Word of God, filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the characteristics of God, filled with the attributes of God, filled with the vision and the calling of God. And if we can get there, we can reimagine anew and we can bless society anew. And I think there's a lot of insight in what Walter Brueggemann says. Um, oftentimes, we can't think outside the box because we've been in the box. How do we get outside the box? Well, we've got to be in another box, and that box is the Word of God. And so when we are in the Word of God, it gives us the ability to be free. It gives us the ability to begin to think God's thoughts after Him. And it begins, begins uh, in us a journey to reimagine the world around us in view of the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I think the good news of this is, well, if you connect this passage to what's taking place throughout all the scripture, is God is making prophets out of all of us. And so by the time we come to the New Testament, we are all prophets because we have the word of God. And therefore, we have the ability to reimagine our world in view of God's word, in view of our relationship with God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, Christ is our great prophet, but so are we as we are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So this morning, it's uh, actually a pretty simple message. Uh, let's give our imaginations over to God. Let's tether our worldview and our minds, um, our time and our hearts uh, to God's word. Uh, let's see our narratives in the narrative of Scripture and the narrative of um, the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is doing, especially now as we are awakening as a society, as we are reengaging people, as we are reimagining what church can be like, what community can be like, what outreach can look like. And I do believe that God, because he is incredibly gracious and loving, will give us wisdom give us insight, and he will work upon our imaginations, and that will be part of the fuel that we need um, to get to the next steps. Uh, so the Lord bless you all. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you for uh, the beauty and the power of your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, you created us, and so every part of who we are is made for you. And you touch all those elements, and you touch all those parts, even those things we, we, we can't even um, handle. 
And we pray, Lord God, that you would work upon um, the secret places of our being, our imaginations as well. And we pray, God, that our lives would be tied to your word in a powerful way. And we pray for great energy uh, to take place, great power to take place, great passion to take place uh, within this congregation um, and all the congregations um, in our world um, as they walk out of this pandemic um, to see how we can best love you and love neighbor for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray these things. Amen.